Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels in the Santa Monica Studios. It's post-Wimbledon 2022. Still rolls on. We've got tennis all around the world. I'm joined now by our guest this week, host of the three podcasts with Amy Lundy and Joel Drucker. Check out their Wimbledon breakdown as well on our Tennis Channel Podcast Network. But Gil Gross is here, fresh off calling some matches. Gil, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Mitch. I was... I've been anxiously awaiting my re-invite. I'm not going to lie. And for a moment there, I was like, I was like, oh, what's what's taking so long? And then I realized, like, your your Rolodex of guests for this podcast, it's like 200 deep. So I, yeah. I'm not offended. Well, we were waiting on, uh, you know, because it doesn't normally happen, a big three member to win a major. So now that we, <laughs> now that we have one, we're, we're good to go. Uh, we can we can take this in a lot of directions, but the first things first, obviously, and this is right up your wheelhouse. Novak Djokovic, fourth straight Wimbledon, 21 majors overall, seven in his Wimbledon trophy uh, case. He beats Nick Kyrgios in four sets. Very good match. Had pretty much all the hits of what you expected in this match. Uh, But I want to start with this and with Novak. He is becoming the standard of five-set tennis and just figuring out a way to win these best-of-five matches. Lost the first set in the last three matches. Was down 2-0 to center, which we know, but... He beats Kyrgios in four sets. And the story to me, first and foremost, and I know you guys have highlighted it on your show, is the level. And it's Djokovic and Kyrgios play good tennis. But ultimately, as is always the case here at center court, Novak gets it done and just maintains it in the bigger moments. Von Reithoven sets three and four. Sinner sets three, four, and five. Nori, two, three, and four. And Kyrgios, two, three, and four. You look at the, all of yeah, the sets yeah. of tennis that I just cited, and it's it's a machine-like consistency, and not in the sense that Novak's not being aggressive. He's not going after it. No, it, it's the aggression is there. He did not miss for large portions of, of this tournament. The cleanliness of play, the way he limited mistakes is uh, was next level, and then you... Yeah. You know, you get to the return of serve, which was so big against Nick. Um, one thing that stood out to me on on that note is the first serve uh, first serve points won, which was eighty two percent against Sinner, eighty two percent against Nori, and eighty two percent against yeah, Kyrgios. The same number. I saw the quote too. I know you watched the match as well when Kyrgios finally won a point on his second serve and was like, he finally missed one. It was like three hours into the match. I also, I watched Novak after, and this is what I would tell everybody out there. When he loses a set, just watch him walk to the changeover, watch him walk to his side. There, there's no panic. There's no nothing. There's no, and this is the maturity of where he's gotten, I think, because th- this is somebody that is consistently, you said, he is putting everything in play, but it's not that he's playing passive or pushing. He is turning it up a notch and playing well. And, and I don't think Nick Kyrgios played poor by any stretch, 
there were three moments in this match, th- uh, say three moments loosely, but the love 40 to break back in the second set lets it get away from him. 40 love on his serve, which we know, and then the tie break, a couple loose points. That's it. And you know what? That's not that much. Like for a lot of the slack that Nick Kyrgios gets, some of it deservedly so, players are normally going to have dips in matches other than the guy he's playing against on the other side. Spot on. I was frustrated with some of the discourse I saw well, about, that's, yeah, well, about yeah. Kyrgios' performance yeah. just because, look, he, ha- he had the running dialogue with his box, which miraculously or expectedly went on for like two, three hours, and it just it didn't stop. But if you were just focusing on what he was doing during the points between the lines, it was a very solid performance from from Kyrgios. And Djokovic, uh, I think he played an A level, and I think he needed it. Yeah, that first set was some of the best serving that we've seen right in any Wimbledon final by Nick Kyrgios. And you do, yeah, it's it's natural. It's not going to maintain as great a server as he is. And, and you've been on record, I have as well, a top 10 server of all time the sport's ever seen. Even that, you're not going to see that for four, for three, four, five sets. I thought that his game was very consistent. He's He raised his level. I know he had didn't have to play a semifinal match, but this is more of a credit to, to Novak Djokovic. And before we get into some more of the Kyrgios stuff and where these guys go from here, I was thinking about this, Gil, uh, the last week. And Kyrgios does get some slack. He's an outlier. He's a bad boy, some say. I think it's more rare, and this final was a perfect example, to be a guy like Novak Djokovic, to be that consistent, that solid, that just, <laughs> that good, for lack of a better word, than it is to be a Nick Kyrgios, because players do have emotions. Some are better at hiding it. Some are better at, you know, harnessing it, so to speak. But Novak is the rare one in this in this sense. This is all credit to him for his game, for his reign at the top. And I think that it's more rare to be a Novak Djokovic than a Nick Kyrgios. I, I think certainly, yeah. I mean, yeah. in the sense of tennis abilities and and attitude put together, is that kind of what you're? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think we're, in, and I'm framing it in the sense that Novak doing what he's doing is way more rare. Like we're not sure. Nick Kyrgios had his outburst. I don't think he's winning this match. Like even if he didn't yell at his box, even yep. you know, and. I think sometimes it is a little bit of a show. I thought the stuff with his box, that's personal stuff that, you know, that's just kind of how he is. That's between the team, who's going to take what and whatnot. But I just think what Novak is and, and just the rare breed that he is as an athlete. I mean, this is, I, we were all talking about we're in the greatest era and we're never going to see this again. <laughs> but his ability to consistently play at this level in the biggest matches to frustrate opponents, to conti- con- consistently be good on the grass that's the rarity that I'm seeing. I'm not, you know, again, maybe it's just looking at the positives, but people look at Kyrgios as this outlier in the sport. I think the real answer is Novak and what he's done and continues to do. Yeah, 100%. So I I get asked sometimes, can you explain the Novak Djokovic game in terms of, like, why is he so dominant? Because I'm looking at it and I'm not seeing it. And you get that from, from some more casual viewers um, who, and I guess the, the reason for that is there's not this very blatantly obvious offensive weapon. It's not the power that Nadal has. It's not just the elegance, for lack of a better term, with Federer. Yeah. With Djokovic, you have technically sound across the board. But, yeah, you don't have what some on the outside casual or just people that aren't consistently day and watching it. You don't have those weapons and those just 
power, I guess, go back to that, that other players at the top have. Sure. The Nadal forehand is obvious. The Federer serve and his forehand, Federer's mm-hmm. forehand as well, like very mm-hmm. obvious jump-off-the-screen type mm-hmm. shots. The way I've been responding when when people have posed this question recently is tell me what Novak is not very, very good at. Give me one thing. And overheads don't count, okay? Because you can try lobbing Novak Djokovic and see how that works. It goes back to geometry with me in the court. And I I go back to the quote that it was Darian King who had this when we got a chance to speak with him. He knows the court better than anyone I've ever seen. He knows just the, the dimensions, how to make his strategy. Maybe he tries the drop shuttle too much at times. But strategically wise, I don't ever feel like he's out of his element and he's tactically messing up. Players are going to make errors. We see it all the time at the top. But I just feel like he has complete control out there. And, yeah, and he also is probably the best technically that I've seen all across the board. You mentioned it. Every shot, every area of his game, there is no weakness. There's nothing to target for these players. Yeah, I can't even answer. So what kind of player, what kind of play style is best against Novak? Is it someone who can grind him down? That's a good point, because every other player, even Roger and Rafa, you could probably argue this type of player would have a better chance. Exactly. Uh, is it someone who grinds him down, like Bautista Goot? Is it someone, Not in best of five. Is it someone <laughs> yeah. who hits him off the court, like Team or Vavrinka? Is that better? It, it's hard to answer, whereas you're right. With Nadal, it's like, if it's a right-hander, do they have a rock-solid uh, two-handed backhand uh, of course, talking about a righty, that they can take on the rise and attack. And and you have these kind of clear-cut, these clear-cut things. If it's a if it's a Federer opponent, yeah. like, do they attack the righty backhand really, really well? Yeah. Right? So so these things are, these mm-hmm. things exist against Novak. What's the game plan? What's the play style that bothers him? He's too complete. There's no good answer to those questions. And mentally, he's just not going to go away. And that goes back to the to the curious thing, like, Kyrgios, like a lot of tennis players, we saw it with Tsitsipas. We've seen it with players throughout the throughout the years. Can mentally not check out, but will have downs, and it's just natural. He's just in it for the fight the whole time. Uh, still a great run by Nick, by the way. Getting to the finals, I know the Nadal pullout didn't happen. He would have you know, had a good chance to beat him, obviously. Uh, we want to know if he's going to get back to a major final. It's not easy. It's... Never been his thing to kind of stack results on top of each other, but we saw at least in this tournament that on the grass, he's as dangerous as anyone. I have a, I have two sides to this. Here's the pro-Nick optimistic go, side. Be good, yeah. Pro-Nick is, look, he's having a great season. It's not just one tournament. He's won over 70% of his matches. He played Medvedev really well at the Australian Open. I was impressed with his performance there. He played great at Indian Wells to, um, to push Rafa to a third set. Tournament in, tournament out. Nick's been pretty good in 2022. He's been different. He's putting in the effort, match in and match out. The glass half empty, pessimistic side is he is now 2 and 16 against, no, I'm sorry, 3 and 16 against top 10 opponents in best of five. He hadn't won. He was on a nine-match losing streak until he beat Tsitsipas at Wimbledon here. If I were to look at the top 10 and I say, Nick, choose an opponent, choose a surface, he'd probably say, give me Stefano Tsitsipas on grass. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good point. Nadal, when he was a kid, when he was a kid, and what was the other one? 
What's his other top ten major win? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, I'm just I'm just curious because like let me yeah, let me get I, it. It'll take me a moment. Three and sixteen. That that's fascinating. And it's look, I argued as well, like a lot of people. I don't know that I see Nick going seven best of five matches. Now he almost only had to go six, so there, <laughs> so there would have been kind of a counter to it. Yep. I think Grass is going to be his best chance. Although we'll see who's in this U.S. Open field, which we'll get to in a second. But I think. To whom much is given, much is you know expected. That old adage. We all love his game. We all love the potential that he has. We think that you know he can play well in that Medvedev match you mentioned. He hadn't even really played tennis. He wasn't in the best of shape, and he played well against the guy who had just won the last hardcore major. So, mm-hmm. same thing with you. I think that there is, you know, I, I got to see more to just expect him to make these kind of runs consistently. But for his serve, for for all of it, again, a guy who doesn't really have a lot of weaknesses. I think there's a I think there's definitely a chance that he could continue this and really have his best tennis in front of him. He seems in a good place at the moment. Again, I think the biggest difference is not, it's really the effort level. It's how hard he's working on the court because, you know, you still have the mental volatility, the outbursts and all of that. You know, that hasn't changed one bit. The same Nick in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. Same Nick. (laughs) Yeah. The difference is even when he's upset, even when things are bothering him, he's still actually giving 100%. Let me give you that third win. It was against Raonich, Wimbledon 2015, ah, which also means, I, Mitch, yep. that he has never beaten a top 10 player in a major off grass. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I forgot about that Milos match. Uh, wow. Well, that's fascinating. I know he gets up for the big matches, and I know that's the other side of it, is that you're not, as the seeding goes up, Potentially, I know no ranking points here, but he's going to have to play some of these guys that aren't in the top earlier. Will he be mentally engaged? Paul Jubb. Paul Jubb. That was five sets. He's one set away from not really having this moment. Novak Djokovic, back to him before we wrap up on the men's side. Do you see an end in sight for this reign at Wimbledon? He's got seven, one (laughs) away from Roger. When is this going to end if if possible? I think Nadal could have given him a good match. So there's that. And do I favor Djokovic? Technically, over Nadal on grass. Novak at his best, Nadal at his best on grass. Novak every day of the week. Yep. However, there were a lot of mental components there in terms of who the pressure was going to be on that I think may have played a factor, may have played a role in this hypothetical match that we didn't get to see. Novak realizing, look, um, Nadal's pulled two ahead. I haven't won one in 2022. I haven't won one since Wimbledon last year. And I might not get to play the U.S. Open. Nadal... House money didn't really know if he was playing Wimbledon or not, has already won two slams coming into the year, coming off of a win against Novak. If that match happened, healthy Nadal, healthy Djokovic, Wimbledon final, I think there would have been a debate. However, the gap between Nadal and Djokovic, I'll say, and everyone else, especially with Medvedev out of the picture, we don't know how Medvedev is adjusting fully to the grass. There's still some things he needs to work on. Uh, the gap between Nadal and Djokovic and everyone else, significant. Yeah, it's just so funny because as you said that, I'm running through my mind and I'm like, yeah, Kyrgios is probably the only one in that gap that could give these guys a match and beat them in a, in a big match. Now, would I bet on it? No, but compared to everybody else, the rest of the field, I'd be like, yeah, it's... And that's where age is a funny thing. We've We've had to change our standards. I think we've kind of gone a little overboard at times with like, well, it's later into the into the you know tennis career span that all these players can go. No, 
Roger, Rafa, and Novak are are one of one types. They're not not everybody's going to be playing their best tennis this late in their career. That said, though, yeah, I, I don't see on this surface. I think Novak will be vulnerable. I would say this. Maybe this is a hot take. I think he's more likely to kind of lose his stranglehold at Australia before Wimbledon. Yeah, I think that I've felt for a lot of years now that the gap, the skill gap between Djokovic on grass and everybody else is largest at Wimbledon. Where mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Medvedev is clearly, clearly good on on the courts at the Australian Open. That's a surface that that suits him and. Uh, Nadal just won for the first Alcaraz time. Alcaraz will be a threat there. Alcaraz on hard court has been, look, we'll see, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it could be his best surface. Alcaraz, there's no there's no guarantee that it's clay. Um, I think it's worth kind of just running through real quick the, the contenders of the players who we were high on coming into Wimbledon. You have Felix, who lost to Cressy. I think a pretty understandable loss, but still, if you're going to be mm-hmm. you're going to be a top gun, you got to get through those, even if you get a bad draw. Then you have Hercotch. I found that loss pretty difficult to forgive against Davidovich Fakir. That was bad. There is one guy though that didn't get to play. Berrettini. Yeah, he's somebody on grass that I think will be in the mix for a long time. Now, can he get to Djokovic's? Who can get to Djokovic's level? It's almost like a ridiculous notion. But can he be a, a consistent threat on the grass? I would like his odds against a lot of the other guys in that up-and-coming stage that you're outlining, including a guy like Sitsipas, who I just I, I need to see more mental fortitude. I need to see more consistency. I need to see the lack of walls. Because really what this comes down to for me with Novak is that we talk about mentally being in, but the lulls aren't there. We see it in team sports all the time. Golfers, even with the open championships going on, you got to just get that number and you got to just not let it get away from you. And then that's another aspect of Novak's brilliance. Yeah. I mean, a couple of slow starts at this event, but that's certainly true. I mean, Tsitsipas has some technical issues on the grass. Mm-hmm. No, with Berrettini, though, like we saw him play Novak yeah. three majors in a row, right? We saw it on clay. We saw it in the Wimbledon final. Then we saw it again at the U.S. Open. It was the same match all three times. We're all three, four sets. Yes. Yeah. And it was the same exact match. First serve percent percentage, points one, pretty close. Yeah. Second serve, points one, a blowout. And uh, <laughs> that's because Mateo can't win a rally against Djokovic. He needs <laughs> no. He needs uh, the serve. So he needs the first serve to go in, or, or he's winning like 40%. So that's the problem, and I don't really think that changes on grass. So as much as I think Berrettini is almost upset-proof on this surface, I I don't think he's that threatening against Novak on grass. Well, I hope we see Novak play in the U.S. Open. That's my personal uh, opinion of the matter there. <laughs> and uh, last thing on this, uh, I'll give you a number. Djokovic, 10 Wimbledon titles before it's all said and done? Does he get to 10? I'll go under. Under. Okay. And, and, you know, my main reasoning whenever – Whenever I get these questions, it would have been the same thing if you asked me a similar question about Nadal at Roland Garros. I do think that once one of them have pulled away from the other in a hypothetical world that they do, or maybe they don't, and it's just, you know, they're starting to really, really slow down and and, and lose to to others, right? But to me, no one's going to run up the score here because there's a motivational factor and that's why, you know, when people are like, oh, and, and this was a more, much more popular take before 2022 where Rafa's look so good. 
Some people are like, oh, Novak's going to run away with this. He's going to finish with five more slams than Rafa. I always said, you know, I don't think, I can't see that happening. Because by the time he's up three, I'm sorry. It's like, what are you playing for? It's like Roger, if there weren't in the hypothetical, no Djokovic, even no Nadal, whatever, I don't. He probably ends up with 20 because what's the point of even going on so far? <laughs> You're right there. He passes Pete and he's like. I just, I watched the uh, highlights of Djokovic Federer recently at 2015 US Open. And uh, they're like, Novak's 10th major. I'm like, that's only 10? That was like seven <laughs> years ago. He's got more than double that since. It's crazy. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Uh, Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Inside and more with him as we recap Wimbledon. I just wanted to mention before we move on to the to the women's side, Nadal doesn't get to go for the calendar slam. The injury forces him to withdraw against uh, Kyrgios after the big gutsy win over Taylor Fritz, who's come a long way in his tennis career. But just the debate, I know we're on the same side of it, of the whole notion of a lucky loser going to the semis. I I don't, I mean, I, I'm glad to see that a lot of people had the same common sense response to this, but I'll let you elaborate on why it would be kind of just insane to just put, and Fritz says credit was like, no, I don't want to move forward like that, but why it would be insane to just give somebody uh, a semifinal appearance off of a withdrawal. Yeah. And we're not, this isn't a straw man argument. I mean, there are prominent people in the sport. Um, there are, we respect everyone's and, opinion. And we, but, and we respect, exactly. And, and, and we I guess I won't say the names, but I I love both of them. I think both of them are great, Mm -hmm. who I have in mind at the forefront of this conversation. I'm with you. Uh, With that being said, the notion of Taylor Fritz playing that semifinal, and I don't don't mean to be dramatic here. It makes me kind of nauseous. How does it, yeah, like, first of all, number one, how often does this really happen? That's my first thing. Well, it hadn't happened since the 92 Australian Open, Richard Krychek. Yeah. So that's so we're talking how much further along and that that would be to get to a semifinal spot and then a semifinal doesn't happen. The tournament's already gone on. It's already happened. And I don't the lucky losers get into the draw because the draw hasn't started yet. Officially we're still on round one. Yeah. Um I don't know how that's fair to the players that like a Kyrgios type who's had to play to get there and then he plays someone that well I had to win to get there has played someone that's lost it sucks for the fans it sucks for the tournament I totally get that I don't I mean Rafa the the, the notion that he was ducking curious is just absurd as well but you can't do it you just can't put someone that's lost further in you can't put an NBA team into the third round in the conference final like why would you do it here anyway. you got it you know hazard of individual sports hazard like, you have to just accept it because nobody's thought out who gets the prize money, who gets the rankings points. Nadal won the quarterfinal. He deserves the semifinal rankings points and the semifinal prize money. So you're moving Fritz ahead? What are you paying him? What what points does he get? What if he makes the final? What if he wins a major and he becomes the first major champion in, in history of the sport to go 6-1 and one and not 7-0? and oh? <laughs> I know. That's, yeah... 
that would just leave a bad taste in everyone's mouth. But again, I mean, Fritz is a competitor. He didn't want it that way. He understands. And, uh, you know, I respect him for that. Just just had to bring that up. No, uh, no. Two yeah. more things. I'm yeah, very, passionate no, about this. Yeah. very passionate about this. Uh, lucky loser thing. First of all, it wouldn't have been Fritz because the lucky loser rules say highest ranked player ah. goes forward. So by that logic, it's not even Fritz. Second, participation in the main draw is given out for free. Like, we don't value that in tennis nearly as much. You mean as like wild cards are exactly. given? And yeah, yeah. Right. Like, we give players wild cards for doing nothing. Okay, Mitch, you could get a wild card. Because I have the right agency that's sponsoring <laughs> the tournament or, you know, yeah. If they want to give you one, yeah. you, you, can, you can get it. So we give lucky losers a free spot despite the fact that they lost. That's not the same as giving someone free advancement in the tournament after losing. Yeah. Please. Well, you got it. I mean, you, you have it correct there. Um, I know we wanted to see more tennis and all that, but it's just, it is what it is. Stunk. Uh, when do you think we see Rafa again? Do we see him in New York City? Yeah, I would think so. The history of this injury, from what I can tell, and it's a common one, Berrettini, Monfils, Djokovic, Australian Open, although that was an oblique, not a regular frontal ab mm -hmm. um usually one or two months like it's it's not nice well, that's why i say one or two because well, it's well two, i know then, if it's yeah. two then then you get into shaky territory yeah. i mean look i don't think we'll see him play much before the u.s open i think that's for sure but uh it's it's an injury that obviously takes time like any other you don't generally do a surgery you know it's it's tough to predict but if you if he kept playing and the tear got bigger and wider, you'd think that would have increased the recovery time. So um, it was interesting to me that that's not exactly the reason that he stated for pulling out. He didn't say I didn't want to make it worse. He actually said I didn't think I could win two matches. So I, you know, that m might have just been the reason that he said or he picked. But I did find that interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll be I'll be optimistic. You know, on the Nadal health front, if you've taken the pessimistic stance you've generally been wrong i think there is a lot of truth to the fact that he by by being on the cautious side has extended his career like if he would have just blown through some of these yellow lights <laughs> i don't know that he's still playing by taking a break and you could say with roger as well though he's been missing so much time now but um i hope to see him it does worry me that if this gets into the the, the summer hard court the prep time what kind of form is he going to be in He's always been that well-oiled machine that needs to rev up. He's a he's so, I mean, OCD is one way to put it, but he's got the routine and he wants to have everything right. So just hope we see him in New York. Um, now, I do want to switch to the women's side, though, because we had 100 to 1, <laughs> you know, betting favorite go in and win it. And uh, Elena Rybakina wins Wimbledon. Her first major beats Anj Jabor in the final. I mean, we, we saw her stats, her splits on grass versus the other stuff, and we're like, wow, this is a grass court player, but... She goes and wins her first major, doesn't show any emotion when she wins it, which was just insane. Like, it looked like she just won a first-round match at a uh, 250 level. But Rabakina wins it. Serve was strong, came to the net, was very, very comfortable, and uh, didn't let the moment get to her. So we have another first-time major champion on the women's side. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting case because she beat Serena last year at Roland Garros, looked incredible in that match. But even before then... Anyone, 
anyone who had seen her, her talent level was really obvious. Like it slaps you in the face. Both strokes are technically sound. The power is enormous and it comes off so smooth and easy. It's not, it's not like a, it doesn't give you like Sabalenka Shapovalov vibes where it's like, whoa, you are, you, yeah. you are a powerful but loose cannon. It doesn't really give that off. It's right. it's controlled power. Uh, then she has the height, the phenomenal serve. You know, I was thinking about it probably right now because Pliskova has fallen off a bit. Second best serve in women's tennis. I don't know where to put Serena right now. Right. It's, it's a yeah. gray area. Yeah. Uh, but I would say Osaka and then Rybakina, who leads the tour in aces. So it just, everything about it, although 100 to 1 because she she kept falling short I think of expectations and eventually people started to kind of write her off a little bit, write her off a little yeah. bit. I agree. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it can't be that surprising. Like if you would have said two years ago or even early last year that Rabakina wins Wimbledon 2022, I feel like you would have had a lot of people being like, yeah, sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into that in a second. I do want to give props to Anshabur, the run that she made making the Wimbledon final. You know, I've talked about last week how she is really a, a pioneer. That word gets thrown around loosely. The consistency that she's had to just have the couple, the year and a half that she's had has been remarkable. And I think she's going to be a factor uh, this time of year, clay and grass, especially going forward. But Rabakina winning Wimbledon, I mean, this is kind of where we are right now on the WTA, right? Like, and I don't mean that, I don't mean that to be, you know, to shame or degrade anything that they've accomplished, but 2015 major season started. Since then, we've had 31 majors, 15 first-time winners on the female side, two on the male side. So 15 of the 31 majors that have been played since 2015 have had first-time winners on the WTA. And I think that might be a little more uh, a little more crazy, so to speak, than the male side of two because we just haven't seen the follow-up act for a lot of players outside of Naomi, outside of Iga. So I think that somebody like Rabakina, the strategy being, look, just get to the second week. Just avoid all those landmines. Get to the second week and put yourself in a position to win the tournament, which she did. Yeah, you just didn't feel great about Dare I say anyone coming into Wimbledon? Because Iga, I, I think it was a case of... We willed that into existence the last time you were on this show, her just dominant We run. did, we did. We were absolutely... She had just won... She had just won Doha, right? And we were just like, She'll, she's not going to lose again. And then what did she do? She just didn't lose again. So props to us. Um, you know, Iga coming into this event, you had a feeling that it just, it just might not be her. It didn't have that air of inevitability that... Paris had where it's like as long as Iga handles the pressure nobody can beat her at her best where we're here it was like okay she can be outserved she can be out hit um it was interesting to me that that ultimately that's not really what did her in it, it wasn't someone blowing her off the court it was Cornet uh you know who I doesn't know. who doesn't play that way but but Jabir sorry uh Sviantec, it was just uh kind of a crisis of confidence. I do think the pressure got to her, and I think it's understandable having that long win streak, having that, like, dread of the first loss internally. Uh, we're not worried. I speak for you in this one. She's yeah. going to be fine. I think that, you know, getting back to the hard courts will be good for her. I just bring her up in this sense. Let's say, like, if we talk about the major count, and this isn't putting you on the spot. Like, let's say she wins six or seven in her career. A couple more RGs. 
hardcore majors, maybe a Wimbledon. Like just just for the sake of this discussion, she gets a six or seven. That's still a lot of majors on the table for the rest of the field. So there is going to be this: who's going to win a major? There's going to be hundred to one winners in the next couple of years, unless we see that consistent, you know, number one type player emerge. And outside of Ega right now. I don't know that the, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. The depth of the WTA game has gotten so much stronger, but we go into every major saying 20, 30 plus women can win it. And this is just another validation of that point. Yeah. I'm just curious about this crop of teenagers right now in, you know, Coco Golf, Layla Fernandez, Clara Towson, um, Emma, Emma. Yeah. Who interestingly enough, like if you're power ranking, Everyone I just said in terms of okay, who is who is next to win a big title? Um, I wow, kind of wonder. That is a tough one, right? I mean, it's it's conceivable. I'm not saying we have to do it. It's conceivable that Emma's last in that. <sighs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's conceivable. You know what's you know what's funny about that though is that, and I love Layla, but everyone you just mentioned except for her has some like pretty serious weapons. They have flaws too. Like I'm not, yeah. you know. But what I'm seeing is just just you know, get that heat check in a two-week run, you know, red line sure. a little bit, which in the men's game, I don't think that's really the foreseeable way. Best of five, the top players are just so strong and solid. But I might put Layla at the bottom end just because of that. Like, yeah. I feel like the other players are more likely, even Emma, which it's it's looked better, but there's still some things there. It, it is. The, the crop of teenagers is fascinating because we know players are going to break through, and it's probably somebody that you haven't even said on that list that we're not even thinking of that's going to be the next teenager to come through. So. 100%. And that's what everybody, when they have these conversations about, like, let's predict what things look like in five years. It's like, you want to go scout the 12-year-olds? Because good luck with that. Yeah. Wow. It, it's, you know, and I say this, like, Iga wins a couple more majors. She has a Hall of Fame career. There's still going to be so many. It's still the land of opportunity on the women's side, but... Yes. Props to Rabakina. She gets it done. She, she is a major champion for the rest of her life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, more with Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Inside and Well, I want to get to just kind of what's going on this week as we wrap things up. Uh, I know you were on the forefront here. Just the, just the stat to kind of just bring up. That Serenko match, the Serenko match, that was the longest women's match of the year, about four hours in Budapest. On top of everything that happened, the girl that she beat was uh, Rakamova. That girl played uh, an average of nine-point servi nine <laughs> service games. 151 <laughs> points on her own serve. And uh, and you brought up the fact that it, it broke the record of a match that didn't even get completed. That's right. Uh, the the longest match on the WTA Tour until the summer, um, you know, half the season's gone, mm -hmm. was 4-3 in the third when Emma Raducanu retired against Daria Seville in Saville, rather, in Guadalajara. That's just, that would have been funny that the longest match of the year wasn't even completed. I would have loved that. Like, that's what I was rooting for. Because that's actually one thing that the WTA always keeps on their notes. They go, like, the year in a nutshell. And it made me so happy every time 
I looked at longest match of the year, and it was a match that wasn't completed. I thought that was great. So, unfortunately, not to be. Congratulations yeah. to Jude Serenko, um for uh, for playing nine minute service games and grabbing the record. By the way, just one last women's tennis uh, tour note. Do you believe? Do you fully believe? Somewhat believe when Ash Barty says, "I'm I'm fine, retire, no plans for a comeback." <laughs> no, I don't believe it. Okay, I yeah, believe. I think I believe it now. But let's ask this yeah. question and. I won't even say next year. Let's go a year and a half, two years, and then we'll see where we are. It's a good rule of thumb that if your body doesn't tell you stop and it's your mind, it's pretty likely that at a certain point your mind is going to say, hey, about that, let's go do it again. I don't even think she's not genuine. I think it could just be we're all kind of a little impulsive. We were all – she could just a year from now be see a tennis racket in the corner of a room and be like – well, hey, might as well just see how this feels and fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, there might be family family stuff. You know, recently married, uh, clearly loves golf and w- wants to give that a go, and she she has passions about playing other sports. But what percent of retirements are, you know, your body says stop and you can't win a match anymore? That's like all of them. So I think... You know, you and I, who follow MMA pretty closely, see this a lot more often because uh, fighters are are a little bit more impulsive after fights, and you know it's such a brutal sport. They're constantly saying, "Okay, I'm done," and coming back. It's like it's like fifty percent of retirements are false alarms in in MMA. In tennis, we don't see it as much. I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. But if you are in in Barty's position and you can still walk out, back, back out on tour, no doubt, no questions asked, and contend for the biggest titles in the world, and your body is there, and yeah. your game is there, at no point are you going to feel like you want to do that? <laughs> I mean, I don't believe it. I agree with all you just said on Barty. The only thing that I would kind of push back on is she doesn't have to worry about getting just her brain beaten in. So, so. Even more reason <laughs> to come back. I know. The UFC comparison is <laughs> good except for the fact that it's like, yeah, well, you know, I kind of, when they're impulsive and thinking about retiring, it's like, do I want to keep getting beaten up in, in front of everybody? So Correct. But yeah, Ash Barty, I, I think we, we shouldn't close the book on her. We're selfish. We're spoiled. We want to see rivalries at the top. And we miss her. That's just what it comes down to. Uh, somebody we've missed that uh, is in a third set now as we record this, Dominic Team, He's going the, going the distance with Roberto Batista. Goot got his first tour win in a very long time against Rusevari the other day. And uh, starting this show, maybe, Gil, some flashes of that top 10 major champion guy that we've seen? He is. He, he seems really fit physically. He's willing to run. And um, that was actually falling off a little bit before he got injured. In 2021, it just seemed like his fitness was down. He went on a big losing streak before he lost to Manorino, which people forget, uh, like lost to Pablo Andahar first round at Roland Garros. And it's been such a nightmare since that time that it's easy to forget that that there were some issues there. Um, but yeah, he's looking fit. I think the backhand looks phenomenal in general. And um, it's really just trusting, and this makes sense, with the right wrist issues, it's the forehand which was arguably the best in the world in 2020, you know, him and Nadal, if, if we're being completely honest. And I understand that that's hard to stomach for some people since the accomplishments are not close. But in 2020, in isolation, I think that's, that's where we were at with the best forehands in the game. And um, that shot has not been there for him. 
And it's so, so important. I mean, frankly, that's what makes him great. Yeah. Um, it, it is the forehand. So the fact that that has been at times not as heavy as it needs to be, at times not as consistent as it needs to be, that has really held him back uh, more than anything else. Do you think that in this wrist injury in tennis, it's such a scary thing to even think about or to deal with as a player? I couldn't even imagine. But there is this fear slash reluctancy to kind of empty the tank, empty the reserve. You want to be as cautious as possible. A, you just don't know if you have it anymore. But B, it's like if I go too hard too soon, I'm I could you know ruin everything in the comeback. And I think with team knowing that. He's been way more cautious in the matches that I've watched before. It's not so much that the forehand's just been terrible. It's that he's not unleashing it, and understandably so. Yeah, and, and I guess that's a great point. And an important thing to remember there is he did re-injure it. He, he hurt his wrist originally, Manorino in Mallorca, and put a splint on it, no surgery, and was like, okay, like let's try to get ready for the U.S. Open. Let's try to defend uh, my title. And he took the splint off, went back to hitting, and he did it again. He re-injured the wrist. So I think it's uh, it's likely and completely plausible that there was a little. I'm I'm using this term loosely. I don't, you know, it's not actually this, but a little post-traumatic stress disorder almost with the wrist hitting the forehand. And again, that's not, not, I don't use that term officially, uh, but, but uh, metaphorically in terms of just being afraid. I mean, of, I think it's fair to say there's some probably anxiety there that you don't want to, yeah, this I just, is your money I, I just don't want to yeah. liken it to real PTSD, right, right. which is a horrible disease. There's anxiety there because this yes. is your livelihood. This is, this is your money maker, and yeah, it could be gone. Right. And, and for team, there was a, there was a sense of holding back. I really do think he's going after it more now though, Mitch. And in, uh, there have been times where it's actually been the consistency now, which might be a good sign. Like he's going after it and he still hasn't found the rhythm and the timing on it perfectly. Do you know what was really funny? There was a video of team hitting a while back at the beginning of his comeback. And everyone on Twitter was like, oh, he changed his technique. He didn't change his technique. His footwork and his timing were horrific. We're going after Twitter now. I love it. Let's go. Yeah. But but it, it was just so funny. Like, his footwork and his timing were so off kilter in this video that was taken that everybody was like, he changed his technique. And uh, it was just kind of a funny thing because it goes to show you that it's a complicated thing. It is. It's... I mean, these tennis players are machines in a lot of ways, and it's like every, and I say that, and it's in the sense of everything has to be working perfectly yeah. to see the product that we see, the work on the practice court, the just being healthy, everything. So love to see him back, see what happens today, uh, and just him going forward, but love to have team as a factor. Uh, the last topic I want to get to is that ATP Hall of Fame event in Newport. The grass season goes on for one more week, and uh, first time since 2006, Andy Murray's there, and with you know, his early wins in this tournament, Query and Purcell, into the top 50 in the live ranking. So Murray back in the top 50, I think, you know, we need to give him, not me and you, but collectively as a tennis community, the respect factor there. Obviously, the big three have kind of soared to new heights, but Murray going back to the well after having the artificial hip and getting to the top 50 and grinding it out to do so deserves all the praise in the world. Yeah, I really like where he's at right now with 
bringing Lendl back, taking some time away, because I do think early in 2022, he lost a couple of tough matches, and I do think he got in his head. Yeah. And he became just a little bit psyched out about about it and frustrated, and he just wasn't playing the best tennis could, he could, could you, play under could pressure. Could you imagine, though, like being a guy that's accomplished what he's a guy? Like, we can't even really put ourselves into that mind frame because he's beaten the best in the world. He's done, he's a major champion, won the finals, got to number one. When you start losing the players that, and he's a super classy guy, but that you've handled in the past, I couldn't really imagine mentally what you have to kind of, the reconciliation process that has to happen there. Yeah, totally. Frustrating. <laughs> and, um, you know, tennis memory is so short. So, like, people will be like, well, how do you lose confidence? How do you lose confidence? My last forehand was bad. That's how I lost <laughs> confidence. I don't care how many majors I've won. I don't care yeah. that I've been number one in the world. Uh, I mean, we, it's yeah. insane yeah. How, uh, how fickle things can be. But, yeah, Murray, uh, I think he's feeling good out there. And um, talk about just loving to compete and doing this not for legacy or, or glory. I don't think... I don't think he feels he's going to win majors, but he loves the process of being on tour and going out against another guy and trying to beat him. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. I'm really, really glad that we've gotten this phase of Andy Murray's career. He loves being a tennis player. It's a great job. And the process that goes into it, you have to sacrifice so much, but the rewards of getting to do that for a living, I can only imagine. Uh, it's great that the Hall of Fame event... A heck, of a, a heck of an event this year, you know, getting Felix to come down there, a top 10 player. I uh, saw Bublik being his usual self there. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good event for sure. And the last thing on today's podcast, honoring last year's inductee, Leighton Hewitt, who won two majors, was kind of that last renaissance of uh, Australia, the last major champion on the men's side for Australia, uh, Davis Cup hero number one in the world. Were you at the U.S. Open as a, as a youth that he beat Pete Sampras? You I was not. That one? No, was okay, not, good, because no. I was rooting for Pete in that one. But seriously, <laughs> Leighton, though, uh, got the most out of his tennis career, which is the best compliment I could give an athlete, is that he got every single ounce out of his tennis career. Yeah. Um, first to win Wimbledon from the baseline. True. I, I like that nugget on him. True. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of my experience with Leighton Hewitt was post-prime Leighton Hewitt. You know, if and post-prime Leighton Hewitt actually was a large portion of his career, really. You kind of start the clock on that. Maybe in 2007, he made one major quarterfinal post-2007. And even though his tennis was not where it once was, the mentality and the way he went about competing was still fully there. So I, I feel like I still experienced Leighton Hewitt, even though I didn't get him winning majors in semis and finals, I still got Leighton Hewitt's competitive drive, and that was totally enough for me. And I, I absolutely loved watching him play. I got a quote, too, and I know he was frustrating to play against. I think a lot of players would say that, you know, use your, use your word. He was that type of player out there. I uh, had one of my favorite quotes when he lost to Federer in 2005 Wimbledon. This is pre-rise of Rafa into that second spot. Roddick was there. There was that rivalry there. But 
after Federer beat him, he said, I, I've got no doubts. I'm the second best player going around right now. It's just that the best player is pretty bloody good. <laughs> so, and I remember when he said it and how he said it was pretty much like that. Like, hey, I feel pretty good, but this guy is just, you know. I, I think that what I got the most out of him was his competitor level, competition level. And he was a throwback in that regard because I think that every match he went into, he's, I mean, he said that Davis Cup win over Federer was better than anything he's experienced winning majors, any of that stuff. And I believe him in his mind. We can debate whether or not that's, that should be viewed that way, but his sense of country and his sense of competing was uh, at the top of the chart. So hats off to him. We'll see what the speech is like. Uh, I know, you know the kids will probably be pro tennis players soon, so we'll <laughs> see what happens there. Yeah, and, and he's been sticking around the sport helping the Aussies, mentoring your Alex Demonors of the world. So we'll be seeing him around, which is always nice. Nothing against the players who fade into the sunset, uh, but but Leighton, Leighton has been around, and um, great respect to him. Well-deserved, and congratulations. Gil, this was fun. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Obviously, you're in the you're high on the Rolodex list, so oh, definitely let's go. on the first page. But I'm not on, I'm not on, we got to do a YouTube one. At some point. We do. Okay. That's that's part of it, uh, I know. It's early, full disclosure. It is early. It might be, it's too early to be on camera, yeah, borderline. <laughs> it's, it's either too early or too late for me. Okay, I got like a two-hour window where I can be on camera. Uh, what do you got going on content-wise, coverage at TC? Yeah, um, T2 next week. The remainder of the early morning at, at Tennis Channel. So very excited to, to be doing Budapest and Bostad. And um, and uh, Lusan this week and through the semifinals and the finals and then T two, three, uh, we are going to celebrate our hundredth episode. Wow! We have actually surpassed one hundred. We're going to do a Q and A. Okay. Take some listener and viewer questions. Excited for that. Nice. And uh, as always, the train rolls on on Monday match analysis. Love to hear that. Uh, for those of you out there that think this is the dog days of summer and all this stuff. There's always tennis. There's always tennis. So just enjoy the tennis, and, and we'll enjoy your coverage as well. Gil Gross, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks, Mitch. Always fun. That was Gil Gross. Tennis Channel Inside In rolls along. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast where you can catch Inside In. Three, the tennis.com podcast, TC Live, all your podcast needs. We will be back next week. More tennis talk. From the Santa Monica studios, I am Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.